Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. And it was cats a couple of weeks ago. Now it's birds that start the program. You're listening to Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley and joining me as always is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. You've got <laughs> Hi, a gaggle Andrew. of geese and a plethora of, of feathered friends. Plovers, yeah. Yeah, plovers. <laughs> oh, yeah. They can be nasty little critters, the plovers. Yeah, no, there's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very rural environment that I live in. So yeah, it's noise. Lots of things going nice. on. How are you, Fred? I'm very well, thank you, Andrew. How are you? I am quite <laughs> well, thank you very much for asking. Um, now, today today we are going to talk about this uh, latest Mars mission, which has just lifted off uh, from California for the first time ever uh, for an interplanetary uh, visit. Uh, they're going up there to look at quakes and analyse the internal geology of the red planet, which is very exciting because we can learn a lot from that. Uh, new research into a phenomenon um, that is known as Steve. Uh, which involves the northern and southern lights. And we'll tell you why it's called Steve if you don't already know. But if you've got young children and they watch children's movies, you probably already have figured this one out. And a question from Paul in Victoria, Australia, not Victoria, Canada, uh, or Victoria in South Africa or wherever there are other Victorias. This is our our Victoria uh, about star mapping, to keep it simple. It's a bit more complicated than that. But first, Fred, this uh, latest uh, mission to Mars, uh, the Mars InSight lander, is on its way. Uh, it is, uh, absolutely. Uh, as we speak, it is. Um, it has taken flight, which it did earlier this week, uh, on its way to Mars, a journey that will end on, I think it's the 26th or thereabouts of November, uh, when the InSight lander does what its name suggests and lands on Mars. Um, InSight is a spacecraft that's almost like a recycled uh, NASA spacecraft because it's based on the on the Phoenix design. And Phoenix, I'm sure you and I talked about it uh, back in 2008 when it did its thing in the northern Arctic region of Mars. Phoenix was uh, a lander that basically didn't have any wheels. It just landed, had a backhoe scoop on it that dug up the soil of Mars so people could have a look. And sure enough, they found lots and lots of water ice underneath the, the surface soil. Mm. So InSight is based on the same chassis as it were uh, which in technical terms is called a bus uh, the, the the bus is the framework of the spacecraft but insight um, once again uh, ha, you know it will not doesn't have any wheels it won't go anywhere uh, but it's designed with a different purpose in mind in fact the the name is a <laughs> pretty contrived I think uh, acronym uh, which starts with 
well, it's, the acronym is Interior Exploration Using Seismic Investigations, Geodesy and Heat Transport. And if you put all that together and mix it up, it spells insight. Uh, it will land on the, um, it's actually now in the equatorial part of Mars. And in, in a way, the, you know, the first two letters of the acronym or the first two words tell you uh, what it's about, interior exploration. It's about looking at the internal structure of Mars, about which we don't know that much. Mm. Um, we do know that Mars differs from the Earth in not having tectonic plate activity, uh, unlike the Earth, uh, which has <laughs> continents drifting around all over the place. Mars well, we're seeing a lot of that activity now. And if you're in Hawaii, hello. Um, yes, that's, that's good right. Grief. Yeah. Uh, that's been exactly. uh, quite amazing. But yeah, that's tectonic activity, definitely, or volcanic activity. But Mars doesn't yeah. have that. In fact, we, we off, uh, up until recently, we considered it to be something of a dead planet. So this will certainly give us a, an insight into whether or not that's the truth. <laughs> that's right. And actually, um, in many ways, uh, there's a parallel there from what you've just mentioned about Hawaii. Uh, so the Hawaiian volcanoes don't sit on a plate boundary. They are in the middle of the Pacific crustal plate. Uh, but what drives them is a magma hotspot. In other words, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a molten magna, not very magma, not very far be below the surface that, that pokes through. And it's actually, the, um, uh, as the Pacific plate has drifted across that hotspot, we've got this chain of, of volcanoes which have formed the Hawaiian Islands. Now, Mars has something similar, because Mars has the, the, the biggest volcano in the solar system. Olympus, Olympus Mons. Mons. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. How high is it? Do you remember? Uh, it's massively high. Uh, yeah. I can't 27 remember. 27 kilometres. I was going to say 26, but I knew it was not in bad, the 20s. But um, yeah, and, and, and in terms of broad uh, landscape, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's just huge. From, it's if you walk from one so. end of it to the other... Yeah. It's just... It's uh, hundreds of kilometres. Yeah. But, but the, re the reason why... Um, why uh, Olympus Mons has grown so big, and actually there are two or three other volcanoes not very far away, um, is because there isn't the plate tectonic activity. So the, the crust is not drifting over the hotspot. There's a magma hotspot underneath, which basically just kept on pouring out stuff through this, um, through these, you know, these uh, craters, and basically built up this very, very uh, high. Uh, shield volcano. Shield volcano is one that's rather flat in structure, like the Hawaiian ones are. Yes. But um, but um, yeah, Olympus Mons grew very tall. So so that we know the geology um, is interesting on Mars, but we don't really know much about the internal structure. Like, is there an iron core? Is that iron core? divided into a solid and liquid core like the Earth's is. That seems unlikely, in fact, because Mars has very little magnetic field, and we know that the Earth's magnetic field comes from, from the iron core. Um, but then questions about the, 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 um, the mantle uh, of uh, soft rock, which overlays the core on the Earth, and we presume something similar happens on Mars, <clears throat> with a crust over the top of that. Now, the way we find out about the internal structure of the Earth, fundamentally, is to use seismology, to use uh, the effect of uh, earthquakes, uh, the vibrations of earthquakes being transmitted through the, the, the bulk of Mars, sorry, through the, through the bulk of the Earth. So we, 
We know that um, um, uh, as an earthquake occurs, perhaps at one of these plate tectonic boundaries, uh, that uh, the vibrations from that are transmitted through the earth and they, they are transmitted in different ways depending on what they're traveling through. And they actually get refracted at boundaries, a bit like light waves are, are refracted uh, by a glass surface. And it's by picking up those seismic vibrations that you can tell what the what the internal structure of the Earth is, so um, we don't have many earthquakes on Mars or Mars quakes, I guess you'd call them. But what we do have on Mars, because the atmosphere is thinner than it is on Earth, is a, a bigger bombardment of meteorites. So meteorites hit Mars's surface. Uh, some of them are quite big; they're big enough to cause seismic waves. And the idea is that Insight will pick these up, and by doing that we'll be able to analyze the internal structure of the planet, uh, at least to a degree that will give us more idea of what's going on than we have now. Okay, okay. so, so we're, we're relying on impacts that are likely to occur after InSight has landed and it's sitting there going, okay, ready, hit me, hit me. Yeah, um, more or less, yeah. Have, have we calculated a time frame where more of that is likely to occur or are we just playing dumb luck here? Yeah, I think with meteorites, these are what you might call sporadic meteorites. They're not uh, anything linked, for example, with uh, with what we would call meteor showers on Earth, although Mars does get those as well. Mm. Um, um, the, the, the project lasts for about two years, uh, and the scientists figure that's long enough to to actually get the sort of data that they want, which basically... Um, you know, in the in the last analysis, should give us a a good three uh, D image of what the internal part of the planet looks like. Um, there's there's three separate experiments. There's the seismometers themselves. Uh, there's um, also a radio system that uh, is almost like a GPS because there are spacecraft in orbit around Mars, um, and that radio system uh, will give you very accurate a very accurate position of where the spacecraft is in relation to the um, the pole of Mars. Now we know, like the Earth, the pole of Mars, the rotational pole, wanders a bit, just like the Earth does, and it's that wandering that gives you some idea of what's going on inside the planet. So the the, the wobbles in the rotation of Mars, so they're, they're tiny, but they do exist, uh, will also feed into our understanding of the internal composition of Mars. And then the other one is a, is a what's called a self-hammering probe. It's a probe that will go, that basically will burrow five meters into the soil of Mars and will look at uh, heat transport from the interior. It's basically clever thermometry that they're okay. doing. If any. So, yeah, that's right. So very, very interesting set of experiments that are very carefully designed. Uh, to um, you know, to, to to give us this information. Mm. <clears throat> so the, the the region where it will land, um, uh, the hope is that it's a, a region that's pretty smooth. It's not got many big dangerous rocks, uh, and it is in fact the 26th of November when it will when it will come down. I was going to ask you how long it takes, and and that's the reason they lifted off from California, isn't it? Because it actually reduced the travel time to a certain degree. Um, yeah, I think it also reduced the the wait time to get a launch window, uh, because uh, you know the, the, there are fewer there's a shorter queue at um, the. Um, 
the launch site in in California, Vandenberg uh, launch site. So we yes we we will follow um, insight with interest and hope to gain some insights. It could be exciting or it could be a dead loss. We don't know yet. We just have to- <laughs> We'll just have to wait and see. And uh, everything, everything we do is exciting. Of course, it is. Yeah, I mean, going to Mars full stop is exciting. I love the place. All right. Well, we'll uh, certainly report back on Insight in the months to come on Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor. Express VPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined Express VPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, Do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Space nuts. Now we're going to revisit something we discussed, oh, must have been last year, might have been more recent. I don't know, we can't keep up with ourselves. Uh, called Steve. Steve is a phenomenon involving the northern and southern lights, and some new research has uh, now been um, released into this phenomenon known as Steve. Fred, I, I suppose we should start by explaining why this is called Steve and, <laughs> and how you astronomy people have messed it all up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you're quite right. Uh, it's It really is an interesting story, this, because, um, you know, we when we think about things like the northern and southern lights, they've been well observed for thousands of years. And um, People understand the structures. We've known how they work for a bit more than 100 years. They're caused by uh, subatomic particles coming from the sun. And so in many ways, it's a bit of a surprise that a new type of aurora has only just been observed and noted. And unlike the the sort of greenish curtains of, of light that uh, we've all seen pictures of the aurora and some of us have seen them firsthand, those yeah, greenish... You're and lucky duck. 
<laughs> I wasn't going to say that. Uh, some of the greenish and, and pinkish curtains of light that you see, they're, they're very characteristic. They've got a particular shape. But this one, uh, the Steve, is quite different. First of all, it tends to be purple in colour. Mm. And it's a, it's a very narrow ribbon of light uh, across the sky. It runs across the whole sky, this narrow purplish ribbon. And they started... You know, they, they basically people started talking about them probably five, ten years ago. And eventually um, it, it bubbled to the surface of what you might call citizen science. Ordinary people looking at the sky and trying to work out what's going on. Uh, and people figured they needed a name for it. Uh, and the reason why it was called Steve is because there is a movie called Over the Hedge. I think it's a Pixar movie, if I remember rightly. I, I haven't seen right, it myself. Yes. Uh, in which some of the characters, it's a kid's movie, some of the characters see a creature that they've never seen before, and because they don't know what it is, they need a name, and they call it Steve. So Steve is the gift to things when you don't know what they are. Yeah. And okay, that's so that's, that, and that's been based on the, the premise in the movie that this unknown thing became steve just for the sake of giving it a name so that's why this is called steve because they it don't is. know what it is but now they've messed it up haven't well they? yeah it's um <laughs> i mean this is just a sideline it, it is a sideline to the story strong but thermal it's emission velocity enhancement it's been oh, post named it's not messing it up at all <laughs> come on um, let, let me let me get to the academic side of this, because what's now happened is, of course, uh, you know, the citizen science work has alerted uh, atmospheric scientists and people who deal in auroras uh, to um, you know, essentially to uh, to study this in detail. And uh, there has now been a paper published in Science, the prestigious uh, American science journal. Uh, the paper is called New Science in Plain Sight. Citizen scientists, citizen scientists lead to the discovery of optical structure in the upper atmosphere. Now that's putting the Steve in the most fancy terms. It's by uh, Elizabeth MacDonald and her colleagues, um, based at various institutions uh, in the US and elsewhere. But uh, the abstract for the paper describes the phenomenon very, very well. Um, a glowing ribbon of purple light running east-west in the night sky has recently been observed by citizen scientists. This narrow suboral visible structure, distinct from the traditional auroral oval, was largely undocumented in the scientific literature and little was known about its formation. Mm. And then they go on to say that, you know, photo sequences taken by amateurs show the, the, the distinct colours um, and the, the, there's a whole lot of blur. But then at the at the end of the abstract, it says, on the basis of the measured ion properties and original citizen science name, we propose to identify this arc as a strong thermal emission velocity enhancement, or Steve. Somebody so, had too much time in a very big thesaurus. <laughs> I think they've done very well. Um, I think it's a you know it's a name that actually describes the the phenomenon very very well, and I think that kind of reverse engineering is, has been very nicely done. Actually, when we spoke about it last, um, uh, uh, Andrew, they uh, they were already suggesting that 
that name as a possibility. So it's now enshrined in the scientific literature. And the other reason why it's been in the news, not just because this paper was published about a month ago, uh, or a month and a half ago, it's also been in the news because there have been uh, some interesting observations of Steve's uh, seen during America, uh, sorry, in, in North America. It's actually ventured further south than it normally does. It seems to occupy a broader latitude band than the traditional auroras. And that's because its, it's, um, uh, its origin is slightly different. It's, it's all about high velocity uh, plasma flows in the upper atmosphere being excited to glow. It's not so much about the bombardment of the Earth by the solar particles, which is certainly what causes uh, the normal aurora. Uh, but the fact that it's got a different origin means that you can see it in different latitude regions away from the poles. So here in Australia, we should be looking out for Steve's. And I think I'm right in saying, um, I'm sure some of our listeners might prove me wrong, but I think I'm right in saying that we have not yet had observations of a Steve reported in uh, actually possibly even in the Southern Hemisphere. I haven't seen anything uh, that's reported them in the Southern Hemisphere. That might just be me missing something. Well, but there's it, a lot, lot more isolation in this part of the that's hemisphere exactly. as well, in this part of the planet. So it's every possibility. We just haven't seen them. And I guess it stands to reason that this is not new. These have probably been going for as long as Aurora. But we've only just noticed them. Is that fair fair point? I think that's I think that is correct. I mean, uh, on the other side of the coin there, um, you know, for the last 50 years, there have been uh, permanent auroral observatories. Um, I've visited some of them in, in northern Scandinavia, which have all sky images of, of the sky every night, sometimes for every minute of every night, to record the aurora. And these things have not been noticed. They maybe don't show up very well on an all sky camera because they are narrow. They're only 25 kilometers uh, wide and they're something like 400 kilometers high so they are a really narrow ribbon of of light um i'd love to see one andrew and um mm. you can be sure you'll be the first to hear about it if i do yes indeed <laughs> uh, in fact I'm, I'm looking at a photograph of one that's on the space weather website and you could actually be mistaken for thinking it's just a glitch in the photography um yes you, you right. often see that kind of uh light in a in a um in a photograph where the where the sun has hit at the wrong angle and it causes a little streak. That's, That's what it right. looks like. Yeah. I'm also trying to figure out what the people are watching on TV in that house that's in the photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's quite a um, it's a very beautiful phenomenon. That's uh, I think the uh, just like the aurora australis and the aurora borealis. They it is quite stunning. So to see it for real would be amazing. I think so. Um, and um, well, you know, the fact that we now know about this uh, is going to alert people to look for it. And we're sure to, to find more observations of it and hopefully some in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully over my place. That'd be nice. Uh, <laughs> oh, they don't come to Dubbo. No. Yeah. No. But if, if anyone does see one and, and if they do photograph something extraordinary like Hannah did for us uh, or she did for herself but she sent us the photo of those uh, noctilucent clouds the other day uh, yes let us know we'd certainly love to find out about your observations and uh, we will um, wait with bated breath Fred this is Space Nuts and uh, great to have your company on episode 102 
Now, Fred, uh, we're going to bump off one of our uh, handful of questions. Actually, we've got more than a handful at the moment, so I'm thinking maybe in a future episode in the next few weeks we could uh, bump off a whole bunch in one big session. Um, see if we can do that. Maybe uh, you know, catch, get up to date. That'd be nice. <laughs> but uh, we're going to just tackle the one question for now. Hi, Fred and Andrew. I love the show and listen to every episode. And he put one more exclamation mark than Hannah did. Uh, I have a question. When, when scientists map our galaxy, do they try to describe where the stars appear at the moment they are mapped or do they account for time changing the position where they appear to be? Thanks and love the show. Cheers, Paul Batty, Vermont, Victoria. Hmm. Hmm. Good question. Don't know. What do you reckon the answer is, Andrew? Uh, I think they'd have to account for some kind of shift, wouldn't they? Yeah, we do. That's absolutely right. Um, and, and in fact, this and is. And thank a... you for the question, Paul, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> this is a. <laughs> Don't go away, Paul. Hang on. He hasn't finished yet. No. Um, the. Uh, th this is a question that's really quite newsworthy at the moment because um, there is a spacecraft uh, in orbit called Gaia and Gaia is tasked with mapping the stars in our galaxy or the local stars in our galaxy to an accuracy that has never been done before. A very, very uh, hyper accurate map of these positions. They're talking about millionths of an arc second. And one arc second is one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. It's a tiny angle. Uh, so a millionth is an even tinier one. Um, now, that's uh, one of the reasons for doing that is, well, first of all, to, to know where the stars are, but more especially um, to do what is the, you know, the, the subplot of, of Paul's question, and that is to work out the, the motions of these stars. So if you can map the, the stars in the sky with this amazing accuracy and then do it again a couple of years later, what you see is a slightly different map because the stars all move. And so they move with um, what we call, actually we call it a proper motion. That's the technical name for the motion of a star across the sky. It's not the true motion of the, of the star because that includes what we call a radial component, backwards and forwards. Uh, but we at the Australian Astronomical Observatory are currently uh, running a, a large survey project which will actually give us that radial uh, component, what we call the radial velocity, the backwards and forwards uh, component of the velocity. But the, what, what you might call the transverse component, the, the, the motion of a star across the sky, a.k.a. its proper motion, that is what is detected by um, a, a, a system like Gaia taking two lots of observations. In the olden days, what we used to do was take photographs of the sky from the ground, of course, and then wait 20 years and then take another one of the same of the same bit of sky, and that would allow you then to calculate these proper motions. But now, because of this exquisite precision of the Gaia spacecraft, we can do it in a much shorter uh, time span. So um, Paul's absolutely right. When we map the, the galaxy, we don't just map their present position. We also map the, the, the motion of these stars so that, for example, if you wanted to um, get accurate positions of stars 20 years down the track, you can kind of fast forward because you know what their motion is. You know how they're moving. Um, the, the, 
The other thing that comes from all this is a better understanding of, of the, the dynamics of our galaxy. That's the way to swell around the centre of our galaxy. By working out these motions, we can establish all kinds of interesting aspects of the, well, the gravitational potential of the galaxy. Um, things like uh, finding stars that belong to the same groups, the uh, same groups as as one another, which probably mean they've come from um, the same gas cloud. Maybe one day we'll even use this technique to find the siblings of the sun, which. Um, mm -hmm. We know the sun would have because it was formed in a glass gas cloud, not a glass cloud, a gas cloud with uh, with other stars, which whose identity we don't we don't know at present. So all that um, um, you know the things that, that are behind Paul's question feed into the very best contemporary science in understanding our galaxy. So a great question. Fabulous. Thank you, Paul. And uh, we certainly encourage questions, maybe not for another couple of years because we've got so many to catch <laughs> up on. But hey, yeah, we'll do our best for you. But uh, yeah, thank you, Paul. That's great. And um, yeah, good answer, Fred. Well done. You should be an astronomer. Now, I, uh, before we go, I, I do want to make uh, one more uh, point without notice. Uh, this week is uh, marked the 50th anniversary of uh, an historical, almost disastrous event. Uh, with a test flight by Neil Armstrong of the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle. And you were talking earlier about the, um, uh, the bus, which is the, the, the apparatus that a um, yes. probe lands on. Uh, this was like a bus, uh, a rocket-propelled uh, um, apparatus uh, designed to sort of practice a lunar landing. Uh, this happened at um, Ellington Air Force Base near Houston. Apparently there was a, um, a, a fuel leak and he lost flight control and he had to eject from the, um, uh, from the aircraft. And uh, the only injury to Neil Armstrong 50 years ago on, I think it was the 6th of May, was that he bit his tongue. Um, and then there's a very, yeah, there's a very funny sideline to this story, and that is that um, the word got through uh, to uh, some important people about an hour after the event, and one of them went and found it, Neil Armstrong. He said, "I just heard a funny story." And Neil said, "What's that?" He said, I, "I heard that you bailed out of the LLTV an hour ago." He said, "Yeah, I did. Uh, I lost control and had to bail out of the darn thing." And um, the, the fellow that was um, Alan Bean, who was uh, sort of talking to him about it, um, said um, he can't think of another person, let alone another astronaut, who would have just gone back to the office after ejecting <laughs> a fraction of a second before being killed. Yeah. And that underlines the mettle of the man and mm. why he was uh, a perfect choice and all of them were great choices for, um, for those extraordinarily dangerous missions because um, you had to keep your wits about you. You had to be ready for any potential crisis and we certainly saw that in Apollo 13. Absolutely, yeah. It's a really nice insight when you see things like that. Um, I assume that the uh, the test vehicle was totally destroyed. Yeah, I think it uh, blew up. I think it um, yeah. Yeah, it was in flames and it flipped over. And yeah, I don't think there was much left of it. But uh, he walked away from that, and um, yeah, with, all he did was bite his tongue and. Quite an amazing man, and uh, yeah, that was 50 years ago this week. So, um, and, and aren't we glad he got out? Because what happened a year later, a bit over a year later, yeah. was um, just exactly. beyond anybody's comprehension. I think, Fred. As always, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. 
And a pleasure to talk to you too, Andrew. And uh, thank you again, and we'll speak again soon. I hope so. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you again for listening to Space Nuts. Tell your friends, share us on all your various social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Bookface, Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) and the rest. I don't know. Uh, And don't forget to keep in touch. Uh, Send us your questions. We love them. And we'll see you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.